Okay, good evening. So last night I gave a brief overview of the five hindrances, those afflictive mental states that get in the way of insight, of clear seeing. And we do that so we can learn how to relate to them skillfully and help them to release. At the end of the talk I mentioned how in the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta we're asked to notice not only when the hindrances are present but when they're absent. And so it's there that I'd like to pick up and continue our exploration. Because based on what I've been hearing in many of the individual meetings over the last few days many of you have been reporting at least sometimes when the hindrances are absent. And the significance of that absence is that it makes room in the heart and mind for highly skillful qualities to develop. And it's these skillful qualities that I'd like to talk about tonight. Specifically, yet another numbered list, the list of the seven factors of awakening, also known as the seven factors of enlightenment. First, though, I'd like to do a quick survey, just to see. Before last night, how many of you had already heard about the five hindrances? Just raise your hands. Probably most people. How many of you would have been able to name what the five were? Not quite so many people. Okay, now how many of you have heard of the seven awakening factors? A little bit fewer again. How many of you can name what all seven of them are in order? (laughs) Yeah, this is pretty common. And so I'm not going to make you do it, but basically they are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi or stability of mind, and equanimity. And usually when I ask these questions, similar to here, most people have at least heard of the hindrances, but much fewer people are aware of the seven factors of awakening. They may know the title, but they don't know what the seven are. And to me, this is pretty unfortunate for a few reasons. One is that this imbalance reinforces the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, that bias that pays more attention to what's painful, difficult, challenging than to what's pleasant, beneficial and freeing. And the second reason is that all of the practices that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta, only a few of which we've been doing on this retreat, all of them are designed to support the development of the awakening factors. So if we don't know what the awakening factors are, we're not going to get the full benefit of insight practice. So for this practice to deepen, we need to learn how to cultivate these refined, skillful mental qualities and how to bring them into balance with each other. Because when all seven awakening factors are present and equally well developed, that provides the optimum conditions in the mind for the deepest insights to arise. Now, even though this is a pretty short retreat, I wanted to at least give you a brief overview of what these seven awakening factors are. 
what they are, how to recognize them, and how to bring them into balance so that you have that information both for your daily life practice and hopefully for any future retreats that you're able to do. So I'll give you a quick run-through again of what these seven factors are now so that you can start learning what they are and learning them in order because their sequence is important and I'll say more about that later. And as I run through them fairly quickly to begin with, you might just notice when you hear each one which of them feel relevant, maybe have some kind of intuitive resonance, feel alive in your experience right now, and also which of them might seem less relevant, less apparent. So the first one, mindfulness, we can ask ourselves, is mindfulness present right now or not? Yes or no? And the answer will always be yes, because just by asking the question, we've re-established mindfulness. So that's an easy win. How about the second factor, investigation? Is there interest and curiosity about my experience? Oh, I'm a bit sort of zoned out and disconnected. And again, just asking the question is itself a form of investigation. So that's another easy success. The third factor, energy. So you might just check now, how's the energy? Too much? Not enough? Is the mind sinking a little bit into the hindrance of sloth and torpor? Or is it revved up more into restlessness and worry? Or is it balance? And if so, what does balanced energy feel like? So we're not over-analyzing or overthinking, but just getting a quick, intuitive sense of it. And then the fourth factor, joy or rapture. Is there any trace of joy in this experience right now? And if joy seems like a stretch, then just notice, is there anything you can appreciate about your experience right now? Anything that brings a sense of lightness? And then the fifth factor, tranquility. Is tranquility present to some extent now or not? That quality of ease, of calm, of stillness that I've been emphasizing in some of the guided meditations. That we can just begin to recognize what does tranquility feel like in the body and in the mind. And then the sixth factor, samadhi, stability of mind, steadiness, unification, non-distractability. How steady and undistracted is the mind right now just to notice without judgment and then lastly equanimity is there some evenness steadiness balance of heart and mind some acceptance is there a sense of staying steady and in the middle not being pulled into any kind of wanting or pushed into any kind of not wanting. So again, just checking 
Is there some degree of equanimity present? No. So that's just a very initial, quick run-through of what the seven factors are. So you might start to get a clearer sense that there's a reciprocal relationship between the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. To put it very simply, when the hindrances are present, then by definition, the awakening factors are absent, and vice versa. When the awakening factors are present, in that moment, the hindrances are absent. So for me, I find it reassuring that there are only five hindrances, whereas there are seven awakening factors. So the good guys outnumber the bad guys. And when we have the good fortune to spend time in the supportive conditions of a retreat center like this, we can start to experience a very natural shift to the extent that we can settle into the support of the retreat container, then organically, almost of its own accord, the mind starts to release the hindrances. And in their place, the awakening factors get strengthened. It's just a natural, organic development. If we can get out of the way, and by that I mean not interfere, not micromanage, not push for something to happen. And over the course of these last four days, all of you have seen some transition from unskillful to skillful states happening to some extent. Now, just in case you're experiencing skeptical doubt at this point, I invite you to remember back to the first full day of this retreat. It wasn't that long ago, but you might remember Back then, I'm guessing, for some of you, it felt like all you were dealing with was hindrances. And now fast forward to today. Is there a difference? Yes? No? Maybe? Most people can probably say, generally speaking, today, there are fewer hindrances than there were on the first day. Does that feel true? Great. So as we settle more fully into the safety, the silence, the solitude, the simplicity, the slowing down and the stillness that are available here, something starts to shift. Samadhi, (coughs) stability of mind, gets stronger. Sati, mindfulness, becomes more refined, more continuous. And these two support all the other awakening factors coming into play so that insights begin to arise. Now, of course, because of the truth of impermanence, these skillful qualities will come and go, just like everything else. And the hindrances will at times still arise. But again, based on what I've been seeing and hearing in the individual meetings, all of us are experiencing generally a decrease in afflictive qualities and an increase in skillful qualities whether or not we yet have named them to ourselves as the seven factors of awakening. So before I go into each of them in just a little bit more detail I'd like to talk about them more generally in terms of their purpose on this path. Now they're called awakening factors or enlightenment factors 
because as I said earlier, when all of them are equally strong and balanced together, they provide the optimum conditions for deep insight to arise. And these insights lead to awakening, also known as enlightenment or liberation or freedom, nibbana or nirvana to use the Sanskrit word. And just to acknowledge, although Nibbāna is the goal, the purpose of insight practice, there are a lot of misunderstandings, misconceptions about what terms such as Nibbāna or even Vipassana insight refer to. So I'd like to clear up, try to clear up some of these misunderstandings. So beginning with the word insight, usually the English translation of the Pali word Vipassana, and Vipassana literally means seeing clearly, seeing distinctly, seeing separately. And the insights that come at first, they tend to be of a more personal or psychological nature. So we start to see clearly and understand our own conditioning, our personal histories, our psychological habit patterns. We start to see through some of the ways that we get caught in identifying with our experience. And so we are able to release that clinging and live with more ease. Then as the practice progresses, the nature of the insights changes and we start to understand more clearly on a more universal level that everything we experience is impermanent and each other. Everything is impermanent, or sorry, imperfect or unsatisfactory, dukkha. And it's impersonal, not self, anatta. In other words, there isn't any fixed, inherent, unchanging essence of me to whom all this is happening. And as these more universal insights strengthen, we're able to let go into deeper and deeper experiences of freedom. Now, for some of you, this is your first retreat, so it's okay if you don't experience Nibbana by Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I'm joking. Whatever level we're practicing at, the purpose of insight is to reduce suffering. So I appreciate the way the English Dharma teacher, Rob Berbea, initially defines insight in his book, Seeing That Freeze, where he says, he begins by describing insight quite loosely as any realization or understanding or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a decrease in dukkha. So that's a very simple, practical definition. Has any of the understandings I've experienced here resulted in some decrease in dukkha. And it reminds us that the point of all of this hard work is to free the heart and mind from suffering. It's not about trying to have some kind of esoteric, far-out experience that we can impress our teachers with or our friends with or ourselves with. And yet this is a very common misunderstanding of what practice is about. And particularly when we hear terms such as awakening or enlightenment or liberation, freedom, nibbana, these words might sound quite abstract, distant, exotic, maybe even meaningless, irrelevant to some of you. 
sometimes people will say to me, well, you know, I'm not interested in Nibbana. And I say, well, what is that? And like, uh, well, how do you know you're not interested in it if you don't know what it is? So for some people there might be an idea, a vague idea of maybe getting there, wherever that is, maybe at some point in the far distant future. But right here and now, that term doesn't sound very appealing. For other people, there might be a more definite sense that Nibbana is about freedom from suffering, but there can be an unconscious belief that it's going to take decades of battling with the hindrances and the defilements and the afflictive energies before we ever experience anything remotely like freedom. So either way, it's pretty common, especially in the beginning of practice, to assume that Nibbāna is something remote, mysterious, not that applicable to our own lives. And sometimes people even think that it would be presumptuous or arrogant to think that Nibbāna is something that we might be able to experience for ourselves. So there's one particular definition of Nibbāna in the suttas that I found very helpful in my own practice. And that's the definition of Nibbāna as a heart-mind that is free from all forms of greed, hatred and delusion. In other words, those three core afflictive energies that I mentioned last night. And with this understanding of Nibbāna, it's something that we can experience for ourselves at least in moments. So whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free of these afflictive states, as can happen on retreat. Now, at first, these moments might be fleeting, perhaps just nanoseconds. But as we learn to recognize them and to strengthen them, over time and with practice, they become more and more the default setting of the mind. So from this perspective, Nibbāna is not a Big Bang experience where we achieve some kind of sudden, radical transformation into a state of permanent bliss. It's not a static state that we get, but a process that all of us are going through. And that's one reason I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment, because enlightenment is a noun and it can suggest that Nibbāna is a state or a place to get to. Whereas awakening is a verb. It's an action that is happening. It's a process. It's the process of letting go of the hindrances and strengthening the awakening factors. So Bhikkhu Analio, the German scholar-monk that I've referenced a few times that some of you also know, he wrote his PhD on the Satipatthana Sutta, and he's written three books now on that text. And he makes the point that all of the practices in the four establishments of mindfulness, all of them are aimed at developing the factors of awakening. So we need to know when these are present. We need to get familiar with them, to learn how they impact the body and the heart-mind. So I'm going to go through them again in just a little bit more detail this time. But again, you might notice with each one, see if you can find some trace of it in your own experience. Because even in these last few minutes, the mind will have changed. 
So again, coming back to mindfulness, the first one, mindfulness or sati. It's the first one because without it, we won't know whether any of the others are present or not. So sati is crucial for recognizing are the hindrances present or not, and if they're not, which awakening factors can come into play. Now, what makes mindfulness an awakening factor rather than an ingredient in bath salts, as I referred to last night, what makes mindfulness an awakening factor is, as it says in the sutta, that it's unremitting. Unremitting means continuous. And that's why I've been putting so much emphasis on continuity of mindfulness through this whole retreat. So we're trying to maintain mindfulness throughout the day, from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep. And in fact, people on long retreats are able to develop such continuity of mindfulness that they know whether they wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath. And they know whether they go to sleep on an in-breath or an out-breath. Now, also, as I've been emphasizing, this continuity needs to be done with a light touch so that it's not exhausting. But it is possible to have that sustained, unremitting mindfulness through all of our waking moments. So this first awakening factor helps us to stay connected with experience. And then we can bring in the second awakening factor, which is investigation. Technically, investigation of dhammas, which may sound a little more obscure. So this word dhammas can refer both to phenomena generally and also to the Buddha's teachings. And in this context, it's an invitation to investigate our experience and to understand it according to this, the Buddha's teachings, those three characteristics that I mentioned earlier, the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of all experience. So investigation is bringing, <coughs> investigation is bringing in wisdom. It's not enough to just be with it, be with it, be with it. We want to know, is what we're experiencing wholesome or unwholesome? Is it skillful or unskillful? Is it afflictive or beneficial? Is it leading to progress on the path or the opposite? So we want to know how is the overall quality of the body, the heart, the mind. So I've been inviting you to ask those questions. They're a form of investigation. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? And how am I relating to this experience? So that question about how am I relating to this experience, that can reveal whether the hindrances are present or not. Is there aversion or greed, clinging and so forth? And if the hindrances are present, then we make the effort to help them to release. So investigation has a close relationship to the third factor, which is energy. And again, this energy needs to be balanced so that it's sustainable over time. And in relation to energy, we're always looking for that midpoint, the middle way, 
between not over-efforting and striving at one extreme and then burning out and collapsing into apathy at the other. And when we can find that balance, there's a relaxed continuity to it. And in the discourses, it's described as unshakable energy. Now, at first, we definitely need to apply some effort, some energy to get that momentum going. But as the factor gets stronger, it develops an almost effortless quality. And at times, it can feel like we're surfing a wave. The momentum of the meditation practice is just carrying us. We don't have to do much at all except keep paying attention. And sometimes when I think of this effortless quality of energy, it brings to mind um, an experience I had when I was walking in the Warren Bungles a few years ago now. I don't know if you know that part of the country, but you can climb up these pretty steep uh, remnants of volcanic cones. And because you're quite high up, you can see wedge-tailed eagles soaring on thermal updrafts. And they feel like they're only just above your head, so you can see all the details of the feathers on their undercarriage. And it's amazing to watch how they just soar and soar and soar, and they almost never have to flap their wings because they've got the momentum to catch that thermal updraft. And sometimes on retreat, when this momentum of energy gets going, it can feel like we're one of those wedge-tailed eagles. And this effortless effort is usually experienced as being quite pleasant. And so it naturally gives rise to the fourth factor, which is joy, or piti, to use the Pali word. Sometimes also translated as rapture, or rapt interest. So the joy that's referred to here is very particularly a mental form of joy. It's not coming as a result of sense pleasures, because it's a more refined mental type of happiness. And because of that, it's more sustainable than ordinary sense pleasures, like, say, eating a bowl of ice cream. The first bowl of ice cream might be very pleasant. Second one, maybe not so. Third one starts to be pretty unpleasant. But joy, when it's present as an awakening factor, it can be sustained for hours, sometimes days, again without much effort when the practice has that momentum. Eventually, though, even this type of joy gives way to the steadiness, the calm of tranquility, which is the next awakening factor. And tranquility is a profound calmness of body and mind. It's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And perhaps partly because it is such a refined and subtle state, it might take a bit of getting used to at first. Most of us are just not familiar with a calmness this deep. So when the mind does get very still, very quiet, not much is going on, we might feel a little bit spacey or unfocused or even disoriented. So it can take some getting used to. And just generally when I've been preparing talks on the awakening factors, I've often noticed that there's 
one that I just can't remember what it is. I can get six out of the seven. And often the one that I miss is tranquility. Perhaps because it is so quiet and peaceful, it can be easy to overlook. So you might notice too at times when you are running through what these seven factors are, perhaps there's one that for you, you tend to often miss. And that's useful information, because the one we forget the most often is often the one that still needs strengthening. So tranquility is this quality of profound stillness and calm. And it leads naturally into samadhi, which as you may have noticed, I've been making a lot of effort not to translate as concentration, the usual (coughs) translation of that term samadhi. And I've been avoiding using the term concentration because in English it sounds like we're supposed to have a forced, narrow, fixed attention. But deep samadhi comes from letting go, from relaxing, from releasing, from letting the mind naturally absorb into a stable, unscattered state. And when we're able to deepen into some degree of samadhi, it's usually experiences a huge relief. Most of us don't even realize in daily life just how constantly bombarded we are by sights and sounds and tastes and smells and physical sensations, mental activity, thousands of sense contacts a second. We don't necessarily recognize the impact on our nervous systems of all of that stimulation. That is, until we experience its absence, when we settle into a period of samadhi. And it can feel like it gives our whole nervous system a rest, a deep rest or reset. And that reset is experiences very nourishing and refreshing. Now at this point in the retreat, many of you have already tasted some moments of samadhi. You might have a sense of what a precious resource it is. So I just encourage you to keep protecting that resource and to put aside even the more subtle distractions that might undermine it. So keep putting aside the technology, leaving alone the reading and the writing and the journaling, so that you can keep dropping down out of the more conceptual level of the mind and come into a more intuitive and embodied wisdom. So that from that state of samadhi, the final awakening factor, which is equanimity, can arise. And equanimity in this context is the mind that is totally, utterly balanced, deeply at ease not clinging to anything in the world, as it says in the sutta. It's not clinging to anything in the world and it's not resisting anything. The mind is just at rest, aware, poised. And it's a very refined state of mind. So even the subtle vibrations of energy and joy aren't there anymore. So equanimity can be sustained for even longer than the previous qualities. So equanimity is 
still, balanced, steady, not reactive, but it's not disconnected. It, the mind that's resting in equanimity is fully aware of what's happening. It's alert and alive. But in that state of non-reactivity, the deepest insights can arise. So hopefully you're getting a sense of the flavors of each of these factors and how they work together to support each other. And just to say, talk a little more generally now, that at least at first, sometimes when we start to develop these mental qualities and the hindrances start to weaken, maybe even at times disappear altogether. As I mentioned the other night, at first this can be quite disconcerting because most of us are so habituated to wrestling with sense desire and aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt. They might be unpleasant, but at least we have something to do, something to keep us occupied. So when the hindrances start to fade away, sometimes it can feel like there's nothing happening. Or it might feel like we've lost our mindfulness because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because the grosser mind states have fallen away. But our mindfulness isn't yet quite refined enough to connect with the more refined experiences that are coming up in their place. This is another reason we want to recognize what the awakening factors are. Because sometimes people come into individual meetings and say, well, nothing's happening, what do I do now? And they say, what do you mean nothing's happening? Well, just nothing. So I might say, well, is there some quietness? Yeah. Does it feel calm? Yeah. Would you say it's tranquility? Yeah. And is there a stillness and a sort of balance of mind? Yeah. So when we explore, actually many, if not all, of the awakening factors are present, but they're just not being recognized at that point. So in the beginning, as we start to develop these qualities, we might start to discover ways that actually we're unconsciously addicted to the dramas of practice, the highs and the lows. And we might secretly be searching for some kind of catharsis of some kind. We might be craving intensity or wanting some super special experience. And we might even be somewhat afraid of these more balanced and subtle states. And when the practice does settle into more quiet, we might try to get some of that familiar intensity back by pushing or forcing or striving to make something happen. And this is understandable because mainstream society conditions us to be constantly productive and doing. So it's not surprising we would bring that attitude to being on retreat. So we need to train ourselves to recognize and be at ease with a mind that is without greed, without aversion, without delusion. And the absence of these might not last very long, but they help to loosen what are sometimes called our karmic knots, 
and our karmic knots are those deeply conditioned patterns or deeply identified with stories that we spent a lot of time and energy wrestling with. And at times when these knots start to loosen, it can feel more like they're unraveling and that we're even falling apart because some of our habitual defense mechanisms and our personality habits and our self-protection strategies are starting to dissolve. We might feel to be in new terrain and on shaky ground. And I've noticed this in my own practice at times that we can touch into this quality of newfound spaciousness and then suddenly there's a kind of internal backlash to it. And one symptom of this is that habit mind goes into overdrive and starts telling all kinds of ridiculous stories or getting lost in fantasies or creating imaginary doomsday scenarios, almost trying to sabotage this shift into more calm and openness. So this phase of the practice, it might be uncomfortable at times. I think of it as a transition phase, almost like we're being adolescent again, that awkwardness of not being fully adult but not being a child. Perhaps more poetically, we can think of it as the metamorphosis of a butterfly, a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. And when the butterfly first emerges from the tight confines of its cocoon, it needs to rest so that the soft structures of its wings can harden before it can fly. So if we are in some kind of transition or in new terrain or feeling shaky or groundless, the best thing we can do is to offer ourselves immense patience and kindness and to whatever extent we can, to trust. Trust that everything we're experiencing is part of a natural, organic unfolding. So as I mentioned the other night, the Tibetan word for meditation apparently literally means getting used to it. So we can think of this too as a phase of getting used to it. Kindly, patiently, acclimatizing ourselves to this new terrain of the mind. So all through this retreat I've been emphasizing a balanced approach to effort, talking about relaxed diligence and exploring and enjoying and letting continuous mindfulness do its work. So although the awakening factors are presented as a list, it's not about ticking them off one by one, like yet another to-do list. At this stage of the practice, our effort needs to be really refined. And the best thing we can do is just to keep getting out of the way. So we need to understand that even with the awakening factors, anicca, dukkha, anatta are still in play. There is impermanence. At times, these states will fall away. And so, again, on retreat, uh, it was very reassuring to me to hear one teacher talk about what she called cycles of purity and purification. 
because early on I had this idea that my practice was supposed to unfold like this, in a nice, straight, even, upward line, moving steadily towards something somewhere called Nibbana. And what I was actually experiencing was more like this. Spirals and loops and troughs and peaks and then backwards for a few steps and then up and down all over the place. So when this teacher talked about cycles of purity and purification, I started to recognize there's almost a causal relationship between them. So the purity phase is when the hindrances have at least temporarily fallen away. We find ourselves sitting with some degree of effortlessness, ease, stillness, joy, steadiness, and so forth. And the tendency is to think, okay, now I've got it. Finally understand what this is all about. This is going to be how it is for the rest of the retreat, right? Some of you are smiling, so you know. Sometimes the very next sitting, it feels like it all falls apart and we're back in hell. Actually worse than when we were at the start of the retreat. And this is a so-called purification phase, where we again need to work through the next round of hindrances are presenting themselves. So again, there is almost a causal relationship. It's precisely because of that purity, that clearing out, that openness and space, that the next level of the hindrances, the defilements, can come in to be seen and then to be worked with, to release. And then they do release, and it's like, oh, yes. And now we settle into an even deeper level of ease and happiness and joy. And we're like, yep, now I'm back on track. And again, we set ourselves up for the next round of the cycle. So the trick is not to hold on to these pendulum swings, neither the purity nor the purification, but to make space for all of it to recognize this is just the natural momentum of the practice unfolding. And with practice, the swings of the pendulum get less dramatic, and we start to be experience the awakening factors more continuously. So all of us have been experiencing at least some of them some of the time. They might not be particularly strong or stable, but as Bhikkhu Analia likes to say, they can be just little buds. And as we know, this tiniest bud has the potential to open into a flower, to bear fruit, to see and to create an enormous tree. So I hope that this overview of the awakening factors gives you some sense of possibility, some inspiration about where all of this is leading. And just to remember that it's a natural process. So in the suttas it's said that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline and flow towards liberation, towards freedom. So may this natural momentum continue for all of us, so that our efforts here on this retreat can help lead us to the deepest freedom of heart and mind. 
Thank you for your attention. Let's again just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.